baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The other scripture is Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The word of the Lord. Well, I am humbled, deeply humbled, to report that my daughter Bryden soundly defeated me yesterday in the Chattanooga River Rat race. Uh, last week, while trying to illustrate uh, what it means to be filled with the Spirit, I talked about the difference between swimming with the current and swimming outside of the current. And we said that being filled with the Spirit is like swimming with the power of the Spirit rushing alongside of us. It's not always easy, but it's a lot easier than getting outside of the current of God's Spirit. Yesterday, the decision, or rather the conversation on the bus uh, riding up to the dock where they push us off, was that there was no current this year, uh, which is not what any of us wanted to hear, which meant that uh, the whole thing was a lot harder, which is also an illustration of life in the Spirit. And that is that uh, when the current isn't flowing, uh, things aren't much fun. Now, One of the things that we said last week was that the mark of the new covenant, at least one of the distinctive marks of the new covenant, is that believers have access to the power of the Holy Spirit in a way that they never did before. And we put a little diagram uh, up. Is there another one on um, the baptism of the Spirit? We're going to get to that in just a second. Um, There's no, okay, okay, well, that's a good one. We're going to get there in just a, just, 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 a, just a moment. But one of the things that we talked about last week was that in the Old Covenant, there was a, many prophecies that there would come a time when the believers would be filled with or baptized in the Holy Spirit and have an experiential encounter with the Spirit uh, unlike anything that went before. And one of the questions that I want to ask you before we go any further Um, is, do you believe that? Um, Do you have a worldview that is in any way open to this idea of God actually moving in, 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 in a powerful way in your personal life that makes a difference in your life? Now, we got a little quiz for us last week. Uh, Adrian Gonzalez, uh, I don't know if he's here tonight, but he stood up. Adrian's a Ph.D. candidate at University of Tennessee in, in, in science. He's been a scientist all of his life. And he essentially said, hey, I experienced a miracle this afternoon. He held up his finger. He said, I was out with my, what was it, his hedge clippers. And he said uh, that I actually put my finger by accident into the, the churning blade 
And I've seen that blade, he said, chop off rather large branches. And by all accounts, my finger should be laying somewhere in the mulch. And all I've got is a paper cut. And so I I ask you, um, what did you think when he said that? And if, if your initial response was entirely skeptical, uh, what I would suggest to you is take a look at your worldview. Now, I understand we should evaluate claims to the miraculous and things like that, but, but if you have a sense that that kind of thing just cannot happen, that's not a biblical worldview. That's a secular, materialistic worldview. And, and, and many Christians have this. It's the idea that God is sort of this, he's up there, maybe he's real, maybe he's a power, he's uh, uh, maybe a good idea to keep us from being afraid in the dark, but, but really in terms of bursting into our lives and, and making any kind of profound change, uh, we don't really expect that to happen. We wouldn't expect him to intervene in any way in a uh, chainsaw accident or whatever he was cutting with. Now, John the Baptist, as Deb just read, he makes a supernatural claim. He says that this Holy Spirit is going to baptize you with power. And he's arguing that there is actually going to be this current of spiritual power that is going to course through the material world, through the world that you can see, and actually change the way you live your life. So one of the things I want you to wrestle with tonight is, do do you really believe that? I mean, we're all comfortable with Jesus as a model, Jesus as an example of virtue, even Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. But do you have a worldview that is open to God breaking through and changing the way you live your life? Well, tonight I want to begin answering the questions the question, what does it look like when we are baptized in the Spirit? And as you might guess, God's people have not always answered that question the same way. And now we can go up to that, that uh, good diagram there of the uh, consensual orthodoxy. In all souls, one of the things that we believe is that there are primary beliefs. Uh, they're found in the creeds. Sometimes it's called mere Christianity that all Christians in all places at all times have always believed. If you join our church, we ask you to affirm these beliefs. Say, I, I believe this. We'll ask you to stand up and say that. And we, all Christians agree on these core beliefs. But there are also secondary beliefs. Sometimes they're called the adiaphora, things indifferent, um, that are not essential to salvation, that good Christians disagree on. And... And in our own body, we have many people with many different beliefs on these secondary issues. And there's a phrase from the Reformation that guides us here, in essentials unity, in non-essentials freedom, in all things love. Now, spirit baptism is one of these secondary issues. And there are two main ways that Christians have understood spirit baptism over the centuries. The first way is what we'll call the Pentecostal charismatic understanding of spirit baptism. And the second is what we'll call the uh, Reformed understanding of spirit baptism. Now, one of the last conversations I had with Mary Tarwater, a gifted teacher in our church who passed away last year, she was teaching a, a group of women a Bible study, and right before she passed away, 
she said, coming out of a prayer meeting, she said, you know what I want to do this winter? I want to teach about uh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, uh, I'd like to talk with you about that, Doug. And I remember thinking, yeah, we need to sit down and talk about that, and that that would be a fun conversation, because I knew that Mary's understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit was more charismatic, and my understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is more reformed. But I knew that in a church like ours that practices consensual orthodoxy, that somehow Mary and I could talk, and, and we could both kind of work together and, and uh, both learn from each other in all of that. Now, I know for a fact that we have people here tonight who have a charismatic understanding of the spirit baptism. We have people here tonight who have a reformed understanding of spirit baptism, and probably a lot of people that have no idea what I'm talking about, but you, but you, you will by the end of the night. Um, and so what I want to do tonight is the best job I can at introducing you to uh, a Pentecostal charismatic understanding of spirit baptism, uh, how, how this tradition understands baptism in the spirit. And I, I don't want to just, just because it's not particularly the view that I embrace, I don't want to give you a straw man. In other words, I don't want to just kind of present its weakest points so that I can knock it down next week. I want to present this as persuasively as I possibly can. And at the end, I'll give a, a few thoughts about strengths and weaknesses. And next week, I'm going to do the same thing with the reform side. And then I want you to discern what you think is true. And beneath all of this, I want you to listen for the, the call of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Let's, let's not go all intellectual on this. Beneath all the doctrine, I want you to listen Okay, I've heard both sides now these two weeks. What is the Holy Spirit actually saying to me? Okay, now let's begin by just taking a moment. There are several streams in the church that have taught that a second blessing was available for the believer. Um, The first group we'll call the Reformed Sealers. Um, They were 17th century Puritans, and they talked about the sealing of the Spirit. They based this on Ephesians 1.13, where it says that that the believer, having believed, was then sealed in the Spirit. And the Puritans thought that you experienced a second work of the Spirit that assured you of your salvation. And they called that the sealing of the Spirit. Now, there was a second uh, uh, tradition begun by John Wesley, the founder of Methodism and uh, related to the holiness movement. And the the Wesleyan holiness movement believed that there was a second work of grace available to the believer. Sometimes they called it entire sanctification. Now, there was a third stream that became popular in the 19th century, and it was called, I I never could figure out how to pronounce it. I think it's Keswick, but it's it's spelled K-E-S-W-I-C-K, Keswick teaching. Uh, Keswick is a conference center in England. And during the late 19th century, a number of Bible teachers, um, A.J. Gordon, A.B. Simpson, sometimes D.L. Moody, and a number of others, uh, began to teach a doctrine of total surrender to Christ, where, where they said there was a point in your life where you could get to a full surrender to Christ and entirely yield to him, and that he would take over your life in a powerful way. Um, 
That, that may sound new to you. It was a pretty common teaching in the circles that I grew up in. Um, I remember at a, early in my ministry, I was at a uh, pastor's prayer conference, and uh, this, this wonderful, godly, retired missionary, his name was Dr. Bud Frey. He was a Southern Baptist missionary in Africa for many years. And I, he just radiated Christ. I mean, you, you know people like that, just radiated Christ. And I, one day I grabbed him at the conference. I said, can we take a walk? I just, I need to know more about how you walk with Christ. And he told me the story. He said he was born on the mission field, or rather was working on the mission field in a, in a college, in a hospital in Africa. And one day everything was falling apart. He was getting ready to leave the ministry. He was very discouraged. And he found this little booklet. And he looked at the booklet. And the booklet talked about this, this idea that if you totally yield your life to Christ, Christ would fill you and empower you for a deeper spiritual life. And he did that day, and he said his life has been different ever since. So those are three streams that were very um, powerful movements in the church uh, prior to the 20th century that talked about the baptism of the Spirit as a second work of the Spirit, subsequent to salvation. Now, in the year 1900, a young Methodist minister named Charles Parham was very discouraged by the lack of power in his spiritual life. He had been reading the book of Acts. He'd been looking at the letters of Paul. And he he just saw what he was experiencing in his church and in his life. And he compared it to Acts. And he said, what happened? Uh, Why do they experience so much more power than I do? Why do they have so much more power to witness than, than I do? Um, and, and, and he began to study the book of Acts, and he, he, in a Bible school that he taught in, in Topeka, Kansas, he gave his students an assignment. He said, uh, I'm going away on this three-day three trip, and when I'm gone, I want you to look at every account in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit is received, and your homework assignment for when I get back is you tell me what does the reception of the Holy Spirit look like in the believer's life. So he went away, and uh, the students all got together, did their assignment, and they came back. They're all excited, and they said they'd all come to the same conclusion. They'd said that in the different descriptions and acts of the the baptism of the Spirit, they said what we found is there's this profound work of the Spirit subsequent to salvation, after salvation, that is uh, expressed in speaking in tongues. And they looked at a number of passages... Uh, they began with the one Deb read, Mark 3, 11, or Matthew 3.11. Then they read Acts 1.4. Jesus says, You must wait for the promise made by my Father, about which you've heard me speak. John, as you know, baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Spirit within the next few days. So they said, when they read the Acts 2 verse on, on Pentecost, they said, okay, here's what you've got. You've got believers who Jesus says, okay, I want you to wait, and then I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And on Acts 2, you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes, they um, are filled with the Spirit, and they speak in tongues. Now, they found four other passages that they thought taught the same pattern. Uh, The second time this happens uh, is in Samaria, and we read about it in Acts 8. 14 to 19, and see what you think. See if you come up with the same conclusion. Um, Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, 
they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And now when Simon the magician saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So the students said, all right, here's what you've got. The Samaritan had already believed. Then the disciples came down and laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Parham, when he was grading their paper, said, no, wait a minute, it doesn't say spoken tongues there. The students said, well, Simon the magician saw something that made them know that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Couldn't it be that uh, what he saw was speaking in tongues? Now, the third time it happens in Acts is Damascus, Acts 9, 17 to 18. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, this is Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and then he arose, and he was baptized. Now, again, when Parham was grading the papers, he said, okay, I see uh, Saul believing, I see him receiving the Spirit, but I don't see any tongues there. And the student said, yeah, but in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than you all. Two more times in the book of Acts, we see a, a baptism in the Spirit. The fourth time's at Caesarea, Acts 10. 44 to 46. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. So, this is about the story about Cornelius. He goes back to his family, these Roman centurion and his family. He believes, they come down, they lay hands on him, he prays in tongues. Now, there's one more time it happens in the book of Acts, and that's in Ephesus, Acts 19, 1 to 6. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, and there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've never even heard if there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who has come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So the students came back to Reverend Parham and they said, here's what we see. We see this pattern of this two-stage work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Uh, We see it clearly in three texts. 
In two texts, it's not so clear, but can be inferred. It works like this. You believe, then at a later point, hands are laid on you, you receive the Spirit, and you, and you pray in tongues. And so they talked about it for a couple of days, and, and uh, Parham uh, decided that the students were on to something. And on New Year's Eve, uh, he decided to call a prayer meeting where he said, well, the disciples in the book of Acts went in the upper room and waited for the outpouring of the Spirit and prayed. Let's do that. And one of the reasons why was that he wanted power for ministry. And he knew that Acts 1.8, Jesus said, if you wait for the baptism of the Spirit, you'll experience power to witness. And that, that's a, a major reason why Charismatics and Pentecostals seek the baptism is power for, for ministry. So they get into a room. And they start to pray. They start like at 9 o'clock in the morning. They pray till like 7 in the afternoon. And then this uh, young lady, uh, Agnes Osmond, says, You know, in the book of Acts, uh, the people that offer the prayers often lay hands on them. And they receive the Holy Spirit when they lay hands on them. So they talked about that for a while. And they look at all the scriptures about laying out of hands and the pouring out of the Spirit. And then uh, Miss Osmond says to her professor, she says, that now it's about 10 o'clock, 10.30 on New Year's Eve. She says, uh, Reverend Parham, when you lay hands on me and pray that I receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He, uh, he prays about it, puts two hands on her head, uh, prays that she'd receive the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, and she begins to, to speak in a language of, uh, that no one could understand. Well, over the next couple of days, this happened to many of, of the students um, in the Parham. I had the same experience. Word got out. The local clergy shut the seminary down. Um, it was scary stuff. Now, uh, uh, eventually, a disciple of Parham's, William Seymour, has the experience, and he's invited by this pastor in Southern California to come to the Azusa Street uh, Church and preach a uh, a revival service. And so this guy's just had this experience. He says, this is great. Everybody's going to want it. He goes, he starts talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Next day, he shows up at church. It's locked. He's told to go home. <laughs> and one lady comes to him and says, actually, I like what you had to say. Come over to my living room. Preach tonight. So he goes over to the living room. He starts to preach about this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And uh, all sorts of people start to pray in tongues. And that starts what's called the Azusa Street Revival. It went on for three years, and it, it gave birth to the Pentecostal movement, um, which now consists of about 300 million people, and it's the most rapidly growing group of Christians in the global south. Now, fast forward about 50 years or so um, to Van Nuys, California. Pentecostalism in the first 50 years was not embraced by the rest of the body of Christ at all. There was great suspicion, great fear uh, uh, on both sides, and a lot of bad blood. Well, in 1959, Father Dennis Bennett, a rector of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Van Nuys, California, uh, noticed a couple of his members who'd been rather grumpy and not very productive had experienced this Tremendous change in their spiritual life. And so he calls on them. He says, what on earth has happened in you uh, to, to cause you to go to be so on fire for, for the Lord? And they tell him about the baptism of the Holy Spirit that they had, at, I believe, at a Pentecostal revival service. And eventually, Bennett uh, says that's what he wants. 
He experiences the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaks in tongues. Uh, A lot of the people in the church experience it. He gets up in church and he says, this is what's happened to me. I think this is what the scriptures say about this. The church uh, fires him. um, And he goes up to Seattle. And he starts uh, or goes to a small Episcopal church up there and begins to kind of practice this kind of ministry. And that was when the charismatic renewal was born. Now, one of the reasons the charismatic renewal exploded was a man named John Sherrill. And John Sherrill was a writer for Guidepost magazine, which I think is still a magazine, is it not? It's a devotional magazine. And uh, he was a very gentle Episcopalian. He'd never heard of any of this. People started to talk about it in the 60s. And I guess his editor said, go look into this and write a little story on it. So Cheryl goes out and he starts interviewing all these people that claim to have this baptism in the Holy Spirit. And to make a long story short, he spends a couple of years, turns into a book, and uh, winds up having the experience himself. And he writes a book called They Spoke or They Speak with Other Tongues. And uh, it, 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 as much as it could in 1960, it went viral. Um, it uh, s- sold two and a half million copies. That's a wish I had that... Uh, contract. <laughs> and I can remember, some of you made too, it was a little teeny book and a white paperback with a picture of the Holy Spirit on it. And I remember people passing them around like pornography, like um, uh, banned literature. And I remember somebody handing me this little teeny tattered book and said, read this, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> it, was, it was kind of a controversial, scandalous thing. Um, in the last chapter of the book, he describes his own encounter with the Spirit. The chapter's called 405. That's the room number in the hotel where it happened. He says, I felt a numbness in my lips and a constriction in my throat, and suddenly I felt an impression that to speak in tongues I had only to look up. Strange that such a simple gesture of lifting the head should become a battleground. And soon, perhaps because I did not obey soon enough, another directive came. Not only was I to lift my head, but I was to lift my hands too, and I was to cry out with all the feeling in me a great shout of praise to God. And hot, angry flush rose and flooded me. This was of all things that what I didn't want to do. With a sudden burst of my will, I thrust my hands in the air, turned my face upward, and at the top of my voice I shouted, Praise the Lord! The floodgate opened. From deep inside me, deeper than I knew voice could go, came a torrent of joyful sound. It was not beautiful like tongues around me. It was ugly, explosive, and grunting. I didn't care. It was healing. It was forgiveness. It was love. Too deep for words, and it burst from me in wordless wordless sound. After that one shattering effort of my will, my will was released, freed to soar into union with him. It was not that I felt out of control. I could stop tongues in an instant, but who would? And so I prayed on, laughing and free. The next three months were one long smile, one long laugh, one long bounding out of bed each morning to meet the day, Many deep-seated psychological quirks disappeared in me completely. I got to know old friends at an entirely different level. Bible reading moved to a new dimension. Church, too, took on a new meaning. And the book is filled with uh, testimonies like this that are very powerful. Now, um, this, this illustration may not work. Um, <laughs> I was practicing it in my office, and I'm not sure it really would work. But um, I wanted to contrast... Uh, the two views, and next week I'll pull out another balloon if, if it works, but uh, uh, the Pentecostal charismatic believes that everyone saved, every Christian saved by the Spirit, and that the Spirit comes and dwells in them. 
Um, so there's a sense in which when we're saved, we all, the Spirit is within us. But uh, Pentecostal or charismatic Christians believe that there comes a moment in your life, this is where the illustration gets hard, where where in an instant, in a moment, the Holy Spirit floods your soul and expands uh, his, his ownership of you and, and immerses you in the Spirit in a new way and you begin to walk and live in a new way. Now, next week, I'll, I'll do the reformed balloon illustration. Um, so, there. So, Pentecostal charismatic believers see the baptism of the Spirit as a second work of the Spirit in which the believer is filled, empowered, and speaks in tongues. Now, if you'd like to read up more on this, a couple of books, John Sherrill's They Speak with Other Tongues, Dennis Bennett's Nine O'Clock in the Morning, Charles Hummel's Fire in the Fireplace. Now, before we uh, wrap up tonight, I, I want to talk to you about uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones and his view on spirit baptism. Uh, Lloyd-Jones, after training to be a medical doctor, uh, was called into the ministry, and he became a very prominent minister in the Reformed wing of the British evangelical movement in the last century. He ministered for 30 years at Westminster Chapel in um, London. And if you were looking for, for a poster child of a non-charismatic, it would be D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, he was a, a modern Puritan. He would get into the pulpit in a black Geneva gown. He would lecture for like an hour on one verse of Ephesians. He spent 13 years going through the book of Romans on Friday nights. Uh, I, I found old reel-to-reel tapes at one point and listened to him. He's about as dry as you possibly could be. For many uh, ministers of my background, he was something of a hero. He was seen as uh, the epitome of, of great expositional preaching. If you've been in the library, I have many of his commentaries up there. Um, he, he's a, a very godly, wonderful preacher. And I remember reading a book that he wrote called Joy Unspeakable. And I... I I was reading along, and I just remember thinking, he cannot believe this, um, because he was the epitome of everything on kind of my side of the camp, the Reformed evangelical side of the camp, and yet he writes this book where he argues for spirit baptism. Um, here, here's a quote. Uh, he says, here is the first principle. I'm asserting that you can be a believer, that you can have the spirit dwelling in you, and still not be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm suggesting that this is something which is therefore obviously distinct from and separate from becoming a Christian, from being regenerate, from having the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Now, he goes through the whole book, makes a case, looks at all the the verses in the book of Acts, but he spends most of his time in Romans 8, 15 to 16, and he builds his case for this, the baptism there. And let me read it to you and tell you what he says. He says, uh, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And here's what Lloyd-Jones said. He said, Every believer is in the Spirit, 
But not all believers have heard the Spirit cry out, Abba, Father, within them. He said every believer obviously is regenerated by the Spirit and is in the Spirit, but not all believers have that assurance, that quickening of my Father loves me, that Abba Father experience. Uh, He says in his book, what the Spirit does is this. He tells us in the most unmistakable manner that we are the children of God, that God loves us with an everlasting love, and that it was because he so loved us that Christ gave himself for us. And he uses an illustration from uh, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin. Uh, Goodwin said, A man and his little child are walking down the road, and they're walking hand in hand, and the child knows that he's the child of his father, and he knows that his father loves him, and he rejoices in that, and he's happy. Then suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of the child, picks him up, fondles him in his arms, kisses him, embraces him, showers his love upon him, and then he puts him down again, and they go on walking together. And Lloyd-Jones says, this is it. This is spirit baptism. The child knew before that his father loved him. He knew that he was his child. But oh, the loving embrace, this extra outpouring of his love, this unusual manifestation of it. This is the spirit bearing with our hearts that we are children of God. It's experiential and undeniable. And one of the things he does in his book that was very interesting to me is he goes back and he tells stories from church history of great Christian leaders that have had this experience. And one of them is Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards wrote in his journal that one day in 1737, when riding in the woods for my health, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God and his wonderful, great, full, pure, and sweet grace and love The person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellently great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conceptions, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, such as to keep me a greater part of the time in a flood of tears. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust, to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a holy and pure love, to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve him, to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a divine and heavenly purity. And Lloyd-Jones encourages us to pray a prayer by D.L. Moody. Oh God, prepare my heart and baptize me with Holy Ghost power. Now, I want to end by um, just talking about some of the strengths and weaknesses of the Pentecostal understanding of spirit baptism. And next week we'll end uh, with the same way. Uh, with the Reformed view. Um, the strengths, uh, I think, are a, a great stress on an experiential relationship with God through the Spirit and an encouragement of faith and expectancy and hope that we can know God in a deeper way and experience His power. Uh, I think the weaknesses is that uh, sometimes uh, the, the charismatic or Pentecostal position can sound like there are two classes of Christians, uh, one that's been baptized in the Spirit and one that hasn't. And sometimes uh, it makes speaking in tongues uh, look like the primary evidence of the filling of the Spirit when uh, there are lots of evidences in Scripture of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now we'll look at that more next year, or next year. Maybe it will be next year. Next week. Um, 
But, but here's what I want you to do with this. I know I've thrown a lot at you. Some of this is reviews. Some of you have never heard of this before. Next week, we're going to do the same thing kind of on the other side. I, I, I want you to wrestle with it doctrinally to, to kind of push into it to see what you think. But don't stop there. Then move to, what is the Holy Spirit saying to me? What is he inviting me into here? And one of the things that I've noticed, and this is something I've read and taught on for almost 20 years now, is that no matter where you are, when you start this discussion, the other side shuts down. We don't want to hear from each other. And, and, and so if I start off with the charismatic side, the, the default immediately is, well, are you saying if I don't speak in tongues, I'm a second-class Christian? And if you start off with the reform side, are you saying, how can you deny the powerful work of the Spirit that you see in the book of Acts? And what I hope happens in our congregation, which is filled with charismatics and traditional evangelicals and Lord knows what else, uh, that we can learn from each other. And at the end of the day, we could say, you know, I just don't see it that way. But that I could learn from Brian Terrell's experience with the Holy Spirit. And, and I could learn from Joe's experience with the Holy Spirit. And even if I disagree with how they understand it, I might hear an invitation into something deeper and more that I might have missed.